Good afternoon. It's good to have all of you with us for um, the journey we're going to take today with the Israelites in Exodus. And, uh, and Tria, it's good to uh, have you with us uh, every week. It's yeah. always great to see you there. Uh, we're going through an interesting uh, passage of Scripture today in Exodus. Uh, as I was thinking about Exodus, you go through Exodus, you think of Exodus as the Exodus from Israel into Egypt. And really, much of the book of Exodus is about a whole lot of detail. And uh, if you're a detailed person, you sure love the passages of Scripture we're going through. And, and as we're going to talk today, I think it's important for us to not get lost in the details. Um, the details are important, but it's also uh, an important to understand it, why they're there. And I think today, as we go through it, you're going to see a whole lot of things that we can go over and talk about. Uh, I mean, the, t the Big Ten are there. Um, it, it's really a nation of Israel uh, that is being formed when you come uh, out of Egypt, and they were following the laws of Egypt. Uh, before that, there were no laws. They were a family. And uh, you know, if you think about it for a moment, in your family unit, you weren't born, and then, and then when you were old enough to know, your father came to you and said, hey, by the way, these are the laws of the house, and, and if you break this law, you're going to be fined this, and if you do this, there, there were no laws formed in most people's families. Uh, you know, if you did something was right, the parent would address it, but there was nothing usually written down for that. Now this, this family has become uh, a nation and God, before they go into the promised land, God's saying to him, Hey, here are some of the laws. Here are some of the things I want you to do as you develop this young nation. These are the things um, that you need to put in place in order to create the structure that God wanted for his nation. And, and we're going to look through some of that uh, today as we go through Exodus, um, I think it's Exodus 19 all the way to 30, 36, I believe. Yep, Exodus yeah. 18 through 36. Which, <coughs> when you're reading through it, some of it you can get caught up in, you know, the descriptions of the... A tent and the tabernacle, the description of the Ark of the Covenant and what was made in that. But there are hidden jewels in each in those descriptions of things that you can you can find. And so I want to encourage you to start asking if you're watching, uh, just just go ahead and ask some questions as we're going through this. I know a number of people are watching this after the fact. And um, and we want to invite, although you won't be able to ask questions, we're glad to have you joining with us on this uh, really kind of talking discussion about uh, what we're going to read today. So let's let's get into it. Let's go, you know, in chapter 19 and go ahead and ask questions as we go in chapter 19. Um, really, in that chapter, the, the theme of it is really God identifying to Mo Moses that although all the nations belong to him, that the nation of Israel would become his uh, nation that he would love with great favor in, in the sense that um, he has an assignment of, for them to be the kingdom of priests 
And this is what his desire is. It's where we first see the desire for the, for the nation of Israel was to be a nation that would identify God as the one true God and that the rest of the world would come to Israel and, and know God, the God who created everything. And God would reveal himself to the nation of Israel, and then they were to reveal that God to the world around them. And I think we all know that Israel, although they believed in the one true God, they took on some of the customs of the world around them. And, and really, instead of being the light that shined to the world around them, in some ways they became deceived. And, and although they believed in one God, um, uh, they also took on other gods. Later, we're going to discover that when God spreads them out, disperses them around the world, they actually become more committed to this idea that there is one God, and they actually resist the pagan gods as they even leave the promised land. Later on, we'll, we'll kind of see that. And uh, w what's interesting is even in 19, as we're getting to the book of uh, or Exodus 20, where, where, where the Ten Commandments are, it, it, I think human beings tend to do this, but the further we get away from God in relationship with God, the more we think the fear of God is the motivator to behave when it's really the love that God has for us that makes the difference. And I think um, a lot of people have said, well, we have to tell people you have to behave a certain way in order to go to heaven. And if you don't, then you're going to go to hell. So that the fear of hell causes us to behave better. And, and I think it's easy to get lost into that way of thinking when we go through the Old Testament. If that's the foundation of our thought, then you're going to miss the full context of what God is saying when we go through this. So uh, in, in 19, we see this uh, more in the chapter 19. Now, I, I want to go to 20 because we don't have a whole lot of time to go through this. So I want to go through ch uh, chapter 20 and uh, talk about really the first commandment that God gives them is is obedience. It's not that we have 10 commandments. There are 10 commands that are given there, but the first command God gives them is to obey his word, to follow his word, that if they obey his word, it will go well for them. If they obey his word, it will go well for them. Um, and so if, if we come to this place of just understanding the importance of obedience, um, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery and who wants to set you into freedom. And I've said this before, the Israelites, although they were no longer slaves in Egypt, they were delivered, but they weren't free. They were in that in-between state of the wilderness. And wilderness thinking has no slave, there's no actual slavery working over them in the physical realm, but their brains, their minds are slave, enslaved to, uh, still to the things they can't do, to the insecurities, to fear. And God really needed to set them free so they could be free from doubt, they could be free from fear, they could be free from the deception of this world and actually walk in obedience. And so the first commandment he gives, he says, I am the Lord your God. 
I am the Lord your God, and you are my people. And when he was declaring that, he was saying, I will provide for you. I will be your peace. I will be your strength. I will be your provider. He's saying, I want to do that. Why? Because I am your God. The rest of the world, the pagans worry about those things because they're pagans and their gods don't live, but I live. I delivered you. In fact, it says verse 4 of 19, on eagle's wings, I swooped down and I brought you out of your slavery and I'm going to be the one. So he can deliver you from your slavery, but you have to walk in your freedom. He, can, he will deliver you from your bondage, but you have to make a decision to walk in your freedom. You have to make a decision to walk in promise. You have to declare those promises over your life. Then he comes to chapter 20, and he says, Now, Moses, I need you to, to go to the people and tell them to consecrate themselves because I'm about to establish laws in the land of Israel, because now you're no longer a family, you're becoming a nation, and a nation needs to be a nation with laws that will be followed. And I think this is where we, we when people make the comment, I am not under the law, I am not under the law, um, I, what they're essentially saying is, is I, like, I'm under grace, I'm not under the law. That is such a subtle deception of the devil. Uh, you're under the law of grace, which is God giving you the ability to fulfill the laws that he established. When you look at the Ten Commandments, just because Christ died on the cross didn't mean that he was saying to you, now it's okay for you to break the commandments. You know, he didn't say, I want you to be lawless. I want you to steal. It's okay to steal. You know, you go have, you go rob a bank, and then when the cops come and get you, say, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm under grace. So I, I know most guys, they're not under grace, and so that law applies to them, but I'm under grace. The law, the Ten Commandments were not given for salvation. They weren't given for them to be saved. They were given so that there would be order in this nation that's being developed. In fact, in most of the chapters we read in Exodus, you have to understand that the laws were given to them because of a nation. They were given in the creation of this nation. And, and God said, these are the laws, Moses. I don't want you to have Egyptian laws. I want you to have kingdom laws for the nation that you're going to form, that's being formed right now. And some people say, well, there's 600 and some laws. Are you saying we should abide by all those laws? No, but those laws were given for that season of time. But and there were things in the law, dietary laws and other laws that were given for the nation of Israel. But just because some of those laws maybe don't apply today doesn't mean all of the laws are not good for today. They were separate. There were some dietary laws, and they were separated from how we relate with people, the laws of how we handle situations with people and, and how they were to be dealt with. And those. So there are laws that we're looking. And then the next question is, well, how do we know which laws applied to the other laws? And I think some of that is just common sense. Uh, when you, it's like we're looking for ways to undermine the laws of God. And, and so I want to go through the Ten Commandments uh, one by one. If there are no questions out there. We'll pull it uh, up right here. There's what? 
I said we'll pull it up right here, the Ten Commandments for you. Okay. Then it go to chapter 20. Very easy to find this. The first commandment is no other gods um, before you. And this was a common practice in uh, Israel. In fact, if you go to Israel, you'll find that even though they believed in the one true God, they would have often um, uh, gods to the side, just gods underneath in case God didn't do something. They would, they would have idols that they would worship. We see that. Uh, when Dan went up uh, from the area that was given to them as an assignment, they go up to what we call Dan now. They stopped at uh, Micah's, where Micah the priest were, and they took the idols of the house with them. Um, it's a common thing that we see that they did have other idols there. And God says, listen, you don't need idols. You don't need to trust money. You don't need to trust mammon. You don't need to trust that I am your God, and I want you to worship me and me alone. And I, I would challenge us all to consider, because uh, the next commandment is no idols. I would all encourage us to consider, are there idols in our life that we kind of worship um, more than we worship God? Um, are there sports teams? Are there uh, celebrities that we worship? Are there activities? Are there people uh, that we worship more than we worship God? You know, it's important to love your spouse, but it's not important to to give them first worship that belongs to God. Um, we tend to spend a lot of money and time wanting to know everything about a person and we know very little about God, and we've created them to be an idol in our life. And so the second commandment is don't make idols. The third one is um, the Lord's name in vain, uh, which, by the way, this is not a four-letter word, cuss word. Uh, it, it, you know, some of us have said, you know, the, the Lord's name. It's exactly what it says. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. In fact, there are people that don't cuss, but they take the name of God in vain often. Uh, oftentimes, just in the ref reference, when we say, oh, my God, to, to anything, he says, don't loosely use my name, honor my name, hold it with great honor and reverence. Um, people that will just sh shout out Jesus Christ um, f when they're angry, when something bad happens, that that is literally taking the name of God in vain. Um, and it's important to understand how we use God's name, that it is important, it's powerful, it's to be used with honor, respect. We, when we use it, it shouldn't be a flippant use. It should be something that is used with honor and respect. It goes on to the fourth one, which is remember the Sabbath. And what's interesting in remembering the Sabbath, this is a big deal with God. Uh, it's supposed to be a day of enjoyment, a day with family, it's supposed to be a day where we enjoy um, uh, just being with God and, and, the, and the benefits of being a, a child of God, the blessings that are in our life. Think about when the last time was that you just sat still and enjoyed life, that you just took a moment to enjoy the blessings of your labor and to rest and to rest your mind and to rest your life. And the Sabbath comes up. Over and over and over again. This is like a big deal to God. I think for many people, um, they, don't, they don't really comprehend how important it is um, uh, in doing this. I see a few questions out there. Uh, we're going to open up. I'm going to stop right there at the Sabbath, and then we'll get in. Well, let me, let me go to the honor of the parents. The two uh, 
commandments I think that we overlook with like like we get thou shalt not murder, commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not have false testimony, you should not covet. We get all of those, but I think the remember the Sabbath and honoring the parents, we kind of just, well, you know, if they deserve honor. Um, those are all commandments God's giving us, not so that we're saved, so that we so that we have life and it goes well with us. In fact, the honor of the parents says life will go well with you if you honor your parents. And I get there are a lot of people that maybe have reasons for not honoring their parents, but it's important because the Bible says he gives us the ability through, because you're under grace, he gives us the ability to honor our parents. Because you're under grace, he gives us the ability to love and to not murder or commit adultery or to steal or to lie or to covet. So if you're under grace, you'll do it at a greater measure. So the uh, Jen has a question there I see that says, "Does God, what does it mean that God is jealous? And, and you would have read this. It says that God is a jealous God, and he is. Um, he created us for himself, right? He created us for himself. And when the word is termed, the idea of jealous is God longs for your heart and the fullness of his heart. And when things try to claim the worship of your heart, God is, he longs for that. He's jealous for that. Um, it's, it, what it's getting at is, is that he wants your praise. He wants your worship. The one thing God doesn't have is your heart. The one thing that he doesn't have that you have is his worship. And so uh, when we worship God, we're giving him the one thing he doesn't have. It's the one thing he longs for, and it's what he created us for. Now imagine this. When you, maybe you work uh, at a job and you work with other people. Um, imagine if you did this project and you were the one that came up with the idea, you drove the idea, you caused it to go through, you made the company a lot of money, you gave them great exposure, you expanded their territory, and when it was all done, someone who works by you, who heard about it, may have had some part in it, but not a lot involved, it wasn't involved with it a lot, then went to your boss's boss and took credit for what you did. How would that make you feel? You would be frustrated, you'd be angry. The thing you were, you were doing was f for this company, and they're taking credit for it. Essentially, that's what, we, what, these, what Satan is trying to do. He's trying to get us to worship him for what God has done or doing. To get us, in fact, if you notice in Exodus, uh, when Moses was up on the mountain, uh, God is with Moses communicating these laws for the land and the people are with Aaron and they said, Moses is gone. Give us something to worship. And they form this idol and, and this golden calf comes out of the fire. 
Aaron says, which is kind of funny he's, as he responds to Moses. When Moses comes down the mountain, I thought this was funny. Uh, Aaron says, well, that you were gone. I didn't know what to do. And then we put gold in the fire and out came this golden calf. When before it says they fashioned it into a golden calf. But isn't it funny how we try to soften the edges of our decisions when, when we're being held accountable? Like we actually went into great detail what they fashioned it together, but when accountability comes, well, it just came out of the fire. I don't know how it happened. And this is what Aaron tells the people. He says to the people, these are the gods that delivered you from Egypt. It wasn't the golden calf that really irritated God. He's not intimidated by the idols. That's not what bothers him. What bothered God was God delivered them from Egypt and man gave credit to a golden calf that wasn't even formed until after they were delivered. Gave, Aaron gave credit to one of God's creation for what God had done, the works of God in their life. That's what caused God to be jealous. He's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Why are you giving your worship to something that I created? I am the God of all creation. And God becomes jealous. I, I think it's an incredible love story. Like God longs for your worship. He wants your worship. And we see that here in the Bible. There, you know, there's something else before we move on, unless there's another question here. Um, so why did God keep, uh, why did the Lord keep using Moses instead of going, of going himself? I, I guess I don't understand the question. So give us a. So I think there, he's, uh, I think she's talking about how, uh, God ca continually used Moses to speak on his behalf rather than just interacting with the people directly. Well, and, and you see this in the scriptures that at one point, um, uh, the people uh, didn't even want to go into the presence of God. Like when God came on the mountain, they stood at a distance and they said, Moses, you go up and speak to God and you speak on his behalf to us. The people didn't even want to enter into the presence of God. And and they even put Moses was that cho chosen mouthpiece that God was going to use. Uh, and and there is there's a pursuit of Moses for God that we're not seeing even in some of the leaders. We, we see later when Mo Moses is gone, how quickly the people, I mean, this is not long after they walk through the Red Sea and the people's hearts turn uh, quickly. Also, you know what else? And that's a great question in this respect. Moses was the only one who was not a slave. Moses was raised in the palace. Moses was raised with, even though it was in Egypt, Moses was raised with this not a slavery mentality where everyone else, including Aaron, had, had literally been raised in a slavery mentality. They had been, their thinking was formed by, by a slavery mentality that they had slave masters. Um, it's an interesting thing. When I did my master's degree, we talked about how when doing business around the world, uh, business owners have to take into account um, the people that live in that nation, that if, if people are, are brought up in a nation of freedom, their response to tasks and, 
um, jobs and how they're led is different than those people who maybe are brought up in a dictatorship or in a communistic setting. And so the worker, the workforce is going to respond different in a job setting. And it's because it's the way they think. It's the way their worldview, the way they perceive how, how things should be done. Or, or you know, uh, when you went to Cuba, they had, it took forever to do anything, but that was just normal to them. So it, it, it was how they thought. It, Moses was not raised in a slavery mindset whereas the people of Israel were. And when they approached God, they approached him from a slavery mindset, which was a fear that God was a dictator, that God was like, the, you did what your slave master said. And I still think some people read the Ten Commandments as though God's a slave master, whereas Moses went there and realized these laws that God were giving were a blessing to them to give them not only boundaries but structure in order to experience the blessing of a lawful nation. And the people as, as slave, they saw it as a slave master and a dictator to them, so they viewed it from fear. If we don't behave, we'll be punished. Whereas God, Moses looked at it and said, these laws I'm giving to you, it's not a matter of you'll be punished if you don't do them, but there are consequences you're going to experience if you don't. Them. You won't walk in the blessings that God has for your life. And so there's a different perspective and even how you read the Ten Commandments. You know, so let me give you uh, six prescriptions here, theological lessons from the Ten Commandments. One, and I'm going to give it to you quickly. These were never prescriptions for salvation. The Ten Commandments were never prescriptions for salvation. You were never saved by doing the Ten Commandments. That's not what they were given for. It was not given to save you. They, that, number two, they needed a savior prior to one, even one of the laws being given. In the, in the chapters we read, they needed a savior before one law was ever given. So when somebody says, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Listen, even, even uh, before the law, they were, they were in need of a savior. The law established things in which to live by, in which this nation would be established on. Number three, their sacrifices were the action that they would participate in with faith for salvation. Because Jesus said, I'll come to fulfill the law later. So it was the sacrifices that God was saying is an act of faith for your redemption. Number four, Jesus validated their sacrifices. Jesus actually, they were doing the sacrifices out of faith and the one who would be the sacrifice that validated the sacrifices they were doing. Five, salvation does not give believers the free pass to be lawless, to just go and do whatever we want. And six, laws are for the, our benefit and God enables us to be lawful. God changes the desires of our heart. So when you read through this, I think a lot of people have become so... Uh, they, they think in a manner where I could just be unlawful. It's okay. No big deal. They weren't going to heaven because they obeyed the Ten Commandments, and they weren't going to hell because they didn't obey the Ten Commandments. They were going to hell because they were born sinners. The laws that God gave the nation of Israel was so that they would become a nation 
to the world that would have laws that came from God that would bless the people of the world, not just of the nation of Israel, that these laws are the laws that bring life to a nation when people obey those laws. God is not trying to hold back from you. God wasn't creating laws to steal from you joy or fun or rob from you. He was giving you laws so that it would we would be a blessing to the world around us. So to say, I'm under grace, therefore I don't need to do any of the laws is a complete misuse of the theology of grace and the law of grace. And I think a lot of people have fallen in the trap of that. Why does God, uh, Jen, she just likes asking some good questions here. Uh, why does God keep uh, give instructions on buying servants? Is slavery okay with God? <laughs> okay, this is a great question, and I knew this one would come up. As you're reading it, it is obvious that God has a prescription for slavery here. And I think there's a couple of things that you want to look at. Uh, when we get into this issue, um, God does talk about owning slaves during this period of time. Um, uh, there is uh, slave use. If you could get the passage up there, I think it's in Exodus 21, uh, 1 through 7. You, I see one of those things talking about slavery. Um it was a common practice. Slavery was a common practice uh, in that day across the board. If, if uh, conquering kingdoms conquered an area, they would take its people and make them slaves. In fact, you'll notice in Egypt uh, that when the, remember when we read back in Egypt, when, the, when the, uh, the drought was happening, people sold their stuff, they gave all their money, then they sold their livestock and animals, and then they sold themselves. For when they had nothing left, they said, I'm going to die, but I'll sell myself. So there was conquerors that would come and take slaves against their will. And then there were people, because they, uh, of whatever situation they were in, they would sell themselves into slavery. And... And it, and it would say, uh, and it even talked about women in slavery. Women did not have a, a high position in society at the time. And so women would be a possession, and their kids would be possessions as well. Abraham had slaves. We know that he had slaves. And, and, but I think slavery takes on this connotation as being held without your will. And Exodus talks about even uh, some of the slaves making a decision on their own to stay slaves. <coughs> I think in Abraham, any uh, scripture we read with Abraham and his slaves, that slaves were not being oppressed. And I think that's part of how we view slavery. In America, we, we have this belief that it is a God-given right that no one own us, that we are able to make our own decisions. But in those decisions, in the freedom of the decisions of many of these slaves, it was in their decision that if you pay my debt, I will give you my life. Even in that, in Israel, and this was not common in other nations in the world, there would be a thing called jubilee. And what that meant was they would be a slave for six years, but in the year of Jubilee, they would be given their freedom. So if they did sell themselves and you covered their debt, 
you were basically purchasing that person and that person would serve you for six years. But in the year of Jubilee, they would be set free to go and become free again. There was always a path to freedom unless, and this is where we get the term bondservant. Paul will use this later. It's found in this in this passage here for the first time you see this, and, and it's brought up when it's talking about how you should handle your slaves. It was a servant by choice, and, a, and they would take an owl, owl, and they would take the earlobe, and they would they would put a hole in the ear and put a bone in the ear, and then that would be a symbol that, yes, you are a slave, but you're more of a bond servant, it, meaning I, I am this person's servant by my choice. I want to be doing that. And when you do that, then you're taking, you have a different position. In fact, your master is probably elevating you to a higher position of service within the home. So that's where we see the difference between a servant in the home and a son and a daughter in the home. That Paul says, I'm a bond servant. I've chosen this to be a servant of God. But Paul is also a son and he, he acts and operates in the kingdom of God as a son. But here's the problem with the whole slave thing, because God is not for slavery, right? But because of our view of slavery today, we automatically look with great disdain on culture. When culture accepts something to be, and paganism, slavery was extremely common, right? Uh, in that day, there was nothing wrong, seen wrong with it because it was just a matter of a fact. But when we're living in a different culture and mindset and worldview, we look back on that with great disdain because you weren't there. You didn't know it. It's hard. You can look at, back at it now and, and be judgment and look at it. But at the time, whether it was right or not, it was the way the world worked. It was the mindset. It was the moral value. It was the worldview of that time oppressing people again and again. And I'm going to tell you, you take God out of the equation. You're going to go right back to that place where people oppress other people. Mm -hmm. God gave people the opportunity to be free even when they were slaves. And then it goes on and it says, uh, we, we also, is there any, another question there? Is the angel that God sends, well, let's see, we've answered a number of gins. Uh, yeah, is, is the angel that God sends ahead of them in the, Chapter 2320, the same angel that was burning in the burning bush and the cloud by day and by night, was it meant to make it easy to follow or give confidence? I don't think that it was. I think it's pretty clear that it was God in the burning bush or Christ in the burning bush. I think the angel that was sent was an angel of the Lord, one of maybe the archangels or one of the angels of the Lord doing the work of God. Uh, in that to lead and to move in that so uh, it's it doesn't exactly say but i think it was probably another another type of angel or something to that extent um i i want to take you to chapter 21 verse 24 this is something that we see now a lot an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and then jesus comes and he says you know it, it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but now I say that if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. And, and it really is evidence of what the law of grace means in our life, where 
where and, and and people say well they contradict each other they really don't they really don't again the laws that are being formed in exodus god is meeting with the leader of moses there isn't a congress this wasn't a vote they weren't voting on laws they didn't bring the 12 heads of the tribes of israel and then bring bills to the floor and then vote on it because this is not a democracy moses went to god god gave him the laws and then moses said these will be the laws that judge our land and they're the laws that god would um, uh, give to the people of israel and then they would follow them and he said the law an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth that when you're judging when moses would judge and later he's judging people for the things that would happen he's saying this if if you do this this is going to be the response in the land later when christ comes he says the law of grace if you think in your heart something towards someone, it's as though you murdered them. He's saying, I'm giving you the ability and the desires of your heart that you will see people differently. That if someone, your enemy, comes and steals from you, you'll bless them. If someone slaps you, you'll turn the other cheek. He says, all he's saying is, yeah, the law says this, and this is the expectation of the law, but the law of grace will call you, cause you to respond even more different to a higher standard than even even what the law says. So it's not a contradiction at all. It's not, and, and it's funny that people think that it's a contradiction. It's calling us to a higher standard, that the law of grace calls us to a higher standard in our life and how we respond with people. Yeah, it's true, James. Money is a modern-day uh, slave driver. A lot of people are making uh, decisions based on money and mammon, and, um, and it rules their life. It's why tithing, it's why generosity is such an important thing because what it's saying is, it's not my God. I can give it away because it ain't going to rule my life. And it's amazing once we make that decision how God blesses us in that as well. Let's go, let's move on as we go. Um, and, it, you know, it talks about the firstborn son and the importance of that uh, and how that works, that they belong to God. Uh, it talks about giving offerings. It talks about the sanctuary. Uh, interesting thing with the sanctuary, it says that you are to bring things to establish the, this tent or tabernacle where the presence of God would come and rest and the glory of God would rest on Moses, which is an incredible thing. Um, would you actually like to, I actually have a 3D model uh, view yeah, of what it, yeah, yeah, I'll put it there. up right now. And then we'll, we'll talk about it. Mount Sinai, by the way, while he's putting that on there, when they get to Mount Sinai, an interesting truth about this period of time, they go to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up Mount Sinai, the presence of God ascends on Mount Sinai. He's been in the presence. Moses comes off the mountain, and something that's interesting about Moses is his face glows. There is something about it that glowed. And Moses makes this statement, even to God, he says, if you're, because God says, you go, Moses, with the people, and I'll send an angel with you. And Moses goes, Lord, if you don't go with us, your presence is the thing that distinguishes us from every other nation. If you don't go with us, if your presence isn't, we'll be like everyone else. And when Moses comes off the, the mountain, 
the glory of the Lord, like there was a glow on him to the point where they would make him cover his face because he had been in the presence of God. You know, what's interesting is I really believe God's calling us to be in the presence. He wants us to come into the presence of God. And when we've been in the presence of God, you can tell when someone's been in the presence of God because although um, you, they may not need to cover their face, uh, there is a glory that shines on them. There's something about them that you know, a humility maybe some would describe, uh, something about them that when they're walking, you just know they've been in the presence of God. You feel the love of God. You sense the peace upon them because they have been in the presence of God. And when he went out to Mount Sinai, they would wander. The Israelites wandered, especially when they went up to the promised land made a decision because of the 10 spies not to go in. Then they wander. They wander around Mount Sinai, this mountain, and they continue to go around it for 40 years because to them, it's the most holy site they know. It was the place where Moses met with God. And so rather than operating in the most, they're living on yesterday's presence. They're living, and, and they're, you know that's where God met with Moses. And so they kind of live around that place and they never move into the promises God has for them. And, and yesterday's miracles and everything God did in your life is incredible and amazing. And they need to be the, the testimony of your witness, the witness of your testimony. They need all of the, but God's not done in your future. He wants to do, he wants there to be a Mount Moriah. He wants there to be another mountain where his presence will reside. And in the meantime, as they're wandering, he creates this tabernacle that we see in Moses. And yet you can play that. I think it goes down and shows them this thing. It, God, when he's on the mountain of Mount Sinai, it's interesting because God has specific details. He has a will. God has a desire for things to be done a certain way. He likes it. And I think we were created in his image. And you can think, take your own life, and there's certain things you like done a certain way. There's certain foods you like. There, there's how you decorate your house. There's things you like to do a certain way. God, who we were created in his image, there was a certain way he wanted it done, and he describes it to Moses. And he says, I want you to put grand detail in this, which is also interesting. You, there's a there's a scripture in here where it says that Moses, I have given the spirit to be able to do artisan work in and then he gives the names of the guys in Dan and in Judah, uh, two gentlemen that, that uh, I think it was three that he says they will teach others and how to do what I'm asking them to do that when God asks us to do something. The first time we see it right here, we saw it with Moses. And when he asked Moses to do something, Moses creates excuses for why he can't. And God says, well, I'm, I'm doing this through you. He said, there, there are individuals in the tribes of Israel that I have put the spirit of ability in them to do these things and to do them well. And I want them to teach others how to do it. And I think we live in a time right now how do you reach the culture we're in? I believe God is putting a spirit in people 
to know how to communicate and how to reach and how to touch the lives of people around the world because nobody knows else knows how to do this. It's never, but God knows how to reach them and he's going to give us. If he's asking you to do something, the spirit of the Lord will come on you and you'll work in an anointing to not only do it yourself, but to teach other people how to do that and, and to really honor and respect that as we see that they had never built these before. There, there wasn't, um, you know, Jacob never had a tabernacle before God. They had altars, but now they're creating, you know, usually they created idols for their God, but God says, I'm not an idol. He says, but I want a seat. And so they create the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark of the Covenant had cherubim. They're in the middle of the the, the, the cherubim that are sitting on the top that are guarding this thing called the mercy seat, which is where God's presence would reside. Um, they put in the Ark of the Covenant some items that that remind them or are important to how God fulfilled his covenant with the people. And it's called the Ark of Covenant, which means God had covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this Ark was a reminder that God's presence God's presence would reside here, and our covenant was for his presence, was that we are tied to him and he's tied to us. We are his people. It was a reminder that it's not in an idol that we make with our hands, but his presence that leads us through this. So it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, uh, he talks about the attitude toward their enemies and how they're to respond. It talks about bribes and how to handle bribes, farming, festivals and the festivals that they celebrate, the three festivals they still celebrate today, and Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacle. Talks about how they should handle growth. I mean, as you're reading through it, it literally is just revealing to them how they're supposed to handle as they grow as a nation, what are the laws so that they can walk in that. You'd also notice in Exodus 28, it talks about this breastplate and uh, I think uh, you can read right past it. It says there is Urim and Theum. I had never seen this before until this time reading through it. And it said it would go on the breastplate. Basically, some say it was their sticks. They may have been jewels, but they're, they all agree that they're supposed to. Uh, Urim was lights, means lights, translated lights. The Theum means perfections. Essentially, when they said that the high priest were commanded to carry these two things with the breastplate, Josepha referred to them as a, uh, a, in a sense of a casting lots, that God would convey his will to the high priest um, by these two items and that they were to have them at all times and that they would be, when they were asked questions, that God would lead them. Um, through these two items and whether it was casting lots or it, if it they somehow shined in a certain way there's not a lot of understanding scholars don't have a lot of understanding on it um, the problem with the casting them down it it really uh, kind of relates more with divination that's uh, what the pagans would do and the gods and the demons that would work through that they would kind of communicate through that so it's not fully understood what it was or what it was for uh, in that, but um, it's something interesting in the breastplate uh, that was uh, listed and described there. Are there any other questions before I go into Genesis 32? Because I want to hit on this a little bit.
I don't see anything. I think you could keep going. I'll let you know if there's okay. anything that, that well, comes. You know, as we're coming up on the end here, let's look at Genesis 32. If you got your Bible, go to Genesis 32. I mean, I, I, I personally think, even though uh, it may have been hard to make it through some of this stuff, um, I, I really want you to kind of see what God is doing here, that God is creating a nation of laws. And this is not foreign to any nation of the time. Every nation had laws. But the only example of a law of laws and nations were nations that crumbled, that were lawless, or a nation with laws that were pagan laws. This is the first time we see God giving Moses direction how to form a nation with God laws, laws of the creator of the universe. And so when you read through this, you're just seeing God form like out of nothing. He's shaping the, the lawful structure Did you mean of Exodus this nation. So Exodus 32, okay. if you look at Exodus 32, we, we come to this place when Moses saw that Moses or when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us a God and we'll, that will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron answers him, take off your gold earrings. He responds to him immediately. Now, remember, Aaron was a slave. He was living in slavery. He immediately gives in to the pressure of the people to do this. And quite frankly, um, you're going to find there, there must have been a lot of pressure. Moses is not there. They see this mountain covered in smoke and fire. I'm sure, sure they're thinking there is no way anyone survived that. that. I mean, they're freaking out. And they go up there. And then God comes to them and says, uh, Moses, these people have already... Uh, abandoned me. In verse 4, it says, look at verse 4. It says, um, oh, I went ahead of myself here. In verse 4, it says, uh, and, and it's important to see this, he took what they had handed him, made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Who brought him up out of Who split the Red Sea? It wasn't this golden calf. It wasn't even around. But they start crediting the things that have happened in their life to their job, to the money. The reason I've had all of this good fortune isn't the creator God. It's this golden calf. It's my mammon. It's my relationships. It's my own ability to connect. It's my skills, my talents and abilities. Why have I done all this? Where did all this blessing come from? It came from an idol. Not from the Creator God. You know, it's interesting too. Romans with, chapter one addresses. You know, um, the gold. I was thinking when I was reading this. Remember what God had told them when they were going to leave Egypt. That one, they wouldn't be threatened. Not, uh, not even a dog would growl at them, but they would pillage Egypt, taking their gold. So it's interesting what God had given them and what He had promised that they would, He would, they would pillage. Uh, Egypt, they then use to worship, to use that gold that God had given them to worship. I was wondering if they somehow, uh, like it, it, it was more because I'm, I'm wondering, is it the golden calf or is it they're literally worshiping the work of their hands and thinking that it was them that brought themselves out or they had? Yeah, 
put trust in themselves. Well, you think, okay, so they take this gold yeah. and, and then they start worshiping it. Yeah. And, I mean, this relates to where we're at. And mm-hmm. in, in, like it's, it was me that did the work. Yeah, exactly. I got it. Yeah. This, the resources that we have, we don't, we view as if, where did it come from? Mm. The, the resources that we work for, the blessing of an, like the food we work for yeah. is all a blessing of God, but we begin to worship it. Mm. And we begin, like scientists, as you were talking, I was thinking about scientists say, we know there is no God because now we know how it works. Yeah. We know, well, now you're worshiping how it works. Yeah. But who is the one who created those systems? Yeah. It, it's amazing. How it works is incredible. It's so intricate. It's amazing how it works which just describes how much greater the creator of that was, mm-hmm. you know, but they're worshiping their God. And then they go on and then they, they create this festival to yeah. their land. In verse five, it says that they, when Aaron saw this and built an hour in front of the calf and announced tomorrow, there will be a festival to the Lord. To what? To the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And after they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So they, they, they celebrate this golden calf and then they go back to the way the Egypt would worship their gods and the revelry that the, and it's what they knew. It was the slave. They go back to the practices of Egypt And then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have quick to turn away. I've commanded them and have made themselves and they've already made themselves out of a calf. And and he becomes very upset. He calls them a stiff necked people. They won't look up. They're going to do their own way. They won't turn from their wicked ways. Mm -hmm. they're, They're stuck. And Moses actually pleads for them. He intercedes with them in verse 11. And God, because of his is because one man was interceding, he yeah. saved the nation. You can't underestimate that mm-hmm. one man interceded. Then you go to verse 17, 18. Joshua is with Moses. They go down and Joshua says, sounds like there was a victory that happened. And Moses goes, no, that wasn't a victory. It's the sound of defeat. And they get down there and they see this golden calf and Moses is angry. And look at verse 21 to 24, because he addresses Aaron, who he left the people with. And 21 to 24, he says, Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Hmm. He says, do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire. And look what he says. Out came this calf. They No, we read earlier they shaped it. But isn't it funny how when when you look back on your actions, we love to kind of kind of sand down what we did we mm-hmm. kind of like to kind of soften what we did mm-hmm. and 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 then this is the part i think a lot of people have a hard time with moses saw that the people were running wild and that aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies 
So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, killing each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. And the Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been apart, set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own son's brothers, and he has blessed you this day. What, what there were ringleaders that really were pushing. Many scholars say that's what he's talking about. Go and seek out the people who were leading other people away from God and the ringleaders of wanting them to come to this golden calf, thinking they were going to create the laws of this nation that would resemble Egypt. And God says, Egypt is not the king of this nation. I am. And they went back and forth and they dealt with the people that were trying to work up the people against Moses when he returned because he got rid of the calf. Hmm. Uh, In fact, the same word that was used. Uh, this only used twice where he said they were going mad. That word mad was used in Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, where it says where there is no vision, people are unrestrained. It's only other place where they were at. They were unrestrained people. They had their own vision wow. of what they wanted to do. And they were running around unrestrained trying to stir up discord in this young nation. And, and Moses said, we're going to deal with the people who are doing with that right now. That this is a nation of God. Interesting. So there's some people I'm sure that would have a hard time with that. Um, you know, the the reality is um, uh, it was God's nation, and they were forming a nation. And anybody who would be against that would mm-hmm. were going to be destroyed in the creation of that. And they were in covenant. They had just they had just taken part in a covenant. They wouldn't have even been free in the first place if it wasn't for God. And so it's like. Not only is God, like, what a gift that God says that I'm going to take you for my inheritance, but on top of that, the blasphemy and the arrogance to um, worship a calf and, you know, defame God. Like, it's his breath in, like, in your lungs, and you use it to lift up the name. Like, you know, like, it's, yeah. it's God's prerogative if he wants to remove the life now or you die later. It's like God's judgment there. I think what is what does Paul say? He talks about the severity that was written in the law and the prophets were for your sake. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. It's like so people have have an issue with that. We live in a a world where, I mean, this is really foreign to us. Um, but well, there are people that think laws restrain us. Yeah. Yes. They restrain exactly. us. <laughs> exactly. To keep you. Blessed. There's consequences to the law in which we're living in. Yeah. Look, look at Exodus 34, 6, because it kind of sets it up for us. Go to 34, 6 and 7. There's a concept that's introduced here, which people have a hard time with. And, um, and, and it's crazy because the cross gives us victory in this. But verse uh, chapter 34, 6, it says, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, compassionate gracious God is slow to anger abounding in love faithfulness and maintaining love to the thousands forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished he punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth 
generation. There's a concept that's introduced here um, that we see for the first time, and we're going to see it as it goes on. It's called generational curses and generational blesses, blessings. It's the concept that if a father does something, even though he may not suffer the consequences, the, the next child, will it will be multiplied. It will be worse in that situation and then worse in that. And then it may be four generations later that the great-grandchildren are actually reaping the consequences for the actions of the great-grandfather and or grandfather and it's this curse that goes on and you see this either a blessing or curse that's passed on so there is a legacy that's left by the decisions i'm making now if my great grandfather did something and he was let's say that one of the more hitler or more uh, ominous people in history hitler if that was my great grandfather and i come to christ listen the cross severs the effect of generational curses in my life. I am no longer cursed because of the cross in my life, the freedom that Christ gives, the blood of Jesus in my life. And, and, um, and so I don't live under that curse, but I live under the blessing of the cross. But there are generational blessings that we can pass on to our children that go on and on and on. And maybe you can sit and say, you know what, my great-grandfather did this, and it kind of expanded, and now I'm experiencing the blessing of those good decisions in my life. So it's a new, new um, form of understanding. Uh, and then one more thing before we leave. This whole thing in the firstborn, I think we talked, did we talk about it last week? Mm, I think so. Can't remember if it was our conversation or on here. So we're, we're talking about it uh, in uh, the series uh, that I'm going to talk in on stewardship. But if you go to verse 19 of 34, it says, The first offspring of every womb belongs to me, including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from herd or flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey, which is unclean, with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck and redeem all your firstborn sons. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. So essentially what it's saying is, is you are to redeem the, the donkeys in that by, by breaking the neck of the donkey. However... You can offer a first a lamb, a perfect lamb in its place, and it would redeem the life of the donkey. Or your firstborn son as well would be redeemed by a perfect lamb. You say, well, why is that important? Because we were born unclean. And in order to be clean and our family to be clean, we'd have to kill the firstborn son. He essentially is saying, offer up a clean lamb in place of your firstborn, and it redeems your firstborn son. Well, how does that practically connect to where we're at? Essentially, Christ was the perfect lamb that was sacrificed, and it redeemed us, Mm -hmm. human race. Yeah. It's so interesting. So I think we've gotten through all of the verses I know it's, it, it was probably, I, I heard from a few people that, uh, you know, to get through all the details and the, 
and and um, you know how big something was supposed to be in the distance and and how much it was supposed to weigh and 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 all the descriptions of it, it which are important for us to understand now because we're able to like create what the ark of the covenant looked like and because we have the dimensions we're able to create all those things so we can kind of see what it looks like so it is important to, important to have that um, and there are little nuggets that you're going to find in all of it uh, when you go through it as as we look look at the law that God was giving this nation of Israel. And quite frankly, uh, says the world was impacted by these laws because God introduced the way the world should establish its laws. And in Judeo Christian society, are, these are laws that are now part of the worldview, even though paganism in, in the world right now is trying to undermine them. Most people think in, in a format that would align with a lot of the scriptures that you see here. And in fact, when, when people say um, that there should be no punishment for stealing, there should be no punishment for um, coveting or any of those type of things, um, it, it's almost foreign to us whether you're a believer or not because that's what we were brought in uh, to believing should be the laws of the land and bring blessing to the lives of people. So I want to encourage you to stay with us. Keep reading through this. Uh, we've been in this five weeks. You're doing great. Don't give up. Keep going. Uh, I promise you, if you will do this, it will make a difference in your life. And it's an exciting journey that we're on. God bless you and have an incredible, incredible week. See you next week.